and so uh, in this hour, first half hour of this final hour, I'm pleased to be joined in conversation uh, by Vanderbilt University Professor of African-American and Diaspora Studies, uh, David Eichert, about why our white brothers and sisters have as much to lose as black folk do when black history is whitewashed. Dr. Eichert, good to have you on, sir. How are you today? I am well. I am well. Thanks for having me. It's my great honor, sir, to have you on, and let's make the most of these uh, 30 minutes or so that we have here. Um, let me start with this with this broad um, notion, and that is um, how, how you feel. Uh, I certainly know how I feel when I discover mm. black history that I knew not of before somebody did all the research to bring it to us, and that's not to suggest that Tavis Smiley should know everything or that David Eichmann right. should know everything, but I always feel cheated. Right. That's the word I'm looking for. I always feel cheated uh, when I find out something that is so empowering, so inspiring, so uplifting that I should have known long ago that I didn't get taught in school uh, or beyond. H- how do you feel when you discover stuff uh, that you just didn't know because nobody brought it to your attention? Well, you know, that's I mean, that's how I ended up doing this uh, academic thing, quite mm-hmm. frankly, because I grew up in small town, North Carolina, Troutman, North Carolina, shout out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't know who Langston Hughes was or Zora Neale Hurston or James Baldwin or any of these folks in my uh, in my youth because mm-hmm. they just weren't part of our curriculum. So it wasn't until I went to this. A, there was a special summer program my junior year in high school that took me lead program that took me to Duke university. And I met the John Hope Franklin oh, Lord, and yes. that changed yeah. my life. Mm. I mean, I had no idea that such, first of all, such an incredible intellectual like him even existed. But then I was exposed to all of these great thinkers and writers, the boys and uh, Elaine Locke and, and, and uh, Garvey and so on and so forth. And I just, that had just not been a part of my curriculum. So I came back and I, you know, I was, first of all, as you say, I was upset. I was Mm -hmm. angry that like, how are these people that were not only central to the black experience in America, but were central to American history and culture? How had they been completely erased from my curriculum? So yeah, absolutely. It it was, it was, it was both appalling, but also illuminating to know that these great things were a part of the American story. During his lifetime, I had the honor to meet John Hope Franklin any number of times and interview him a couple times on my uh, various TV and radio programs over the course of my career. Always an honor to be in his presence. I'm just curious, though, as a student, how did you process being in the presence of one John Hope Franklin? Oh, it's just, you know, people uh, talk about, uh, you, you have been recently uh, listening to some of these athletes talk about, like, how the the first time they met Michael Jordan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan Iverson talks about how the first time he met Michael, he played against Michael Jordan, and how he had to, how he had to pinch himself, right, yeah. as he's on the court <laughs> to believe that I'm actually on the court with the Michael Jordan. Yeah, uh, and that's how it felt. I, it was it was it was like um, I didn't even realize who John Hope, Hope Franklin was, but when I walked in the room, there was an energy and there was a calm. And a, and a regalness to this man, yeah. and that I realized I am literally in the in in the room of greatness. Yeah. Um, this man is a living, breathing history, a, a living, breathing ancestor who um, just you know his the way that he would impart wisdom. You would he was so subtle, and he was so um, 
uh, understated in his brilliance that that it was almost it was only later on that I just kind of realized what a incredibly unique experience that I had. And I wish that I had, you know, I was only at the time I was only 17 and I had wished that I had really fully imbibed what that that experience was. And of course, um, that was the only time I ever got to meet him. and, And and he passed several years um, afterwards, but yeah. that was that was just incredible. Yeah, I I can only imagine. Um, and and speaking of Allen Iverson, uh, I'm a, I'm a huge AI fan, a huge Michael Jordan fan. Uh, but Allen had to pinch himself, but he eventually got over it. Because for those of us who are yes, NBA he fans, that mad, that he, he, crossed he crossed over him over, and man, he crossed he crossed MJ <laughs> over. <laughs> Yeah, for those oh, for those of us who are fans, forgiving him for that to this day. No, sir. Michael is not forgiving AI uh, uh, AI for that since uh, I was laugh I was laughing the minute you said it because uh, again you can't be a sports fan, an NBA fan, and not remember that AI crossover uh, of MJ. Uh, but so uh, he he eventually got over he got over the fact that he was on the court with Michael Jordan and went ahead and did his thing. I ain't mad at you, AI. Our guest in this hour, this first half hour of this final hour of our program today is Dr. David Eichen. We're talking about. Um, the whitewashing of African-American history. And when we come forward, I want to come right to that specific question. Now that we've laid the foundation, what it is that our white brothers and sisters have to gain, uh, as do we, black people, uh, by not whitewashing black history. We'll continue with Dr. David Eichert when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. We knew you'd stick around. This is L.A.'s home for progressive talk radio. Welcome back to KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. David Eichert, speaking of a John Hope Franklin, I've been so honored and humbled, and I do mean humbled in my career, to have uh, met and befriended so many uh, African-American icons, uh, so many uh, African-American history makers, trailblazers, including one Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks was a dear friend mm. of mine, uh, <clears throat> so much so that one day when my mother was here visiting me in L.A. Uh, from Indiana, we were uh, in the kitchen uh, preparing dinner. My mother is an amazing cook. And there was a ring at the doorbell, and I won't tell the whole story, but lo and behold, uh, Mrs. Parks had stopped by my house unannounced. Mm. Uh, and I ran to the kitchen, and I said, Mama, guess who's coming to dinner? Uh, and Rosa oh Parks. Oh, my God. <laughs> Ms. Oh, my goodness. Mrs. Parks came in my house, and she sat for hours. But my mother and me, just just us, wow. uh, having dinner at my house. That's just one of many stories I, I have of spending Woo. so much time with Mrs. Parks. I raised that. Uh, only because I love, love, love the story that you told. Your TED Talk was amazing. But this story of your son um, learning about Rosa Parks, we'll get to the whitewashing of black history. But I wonder if you might indulge me one more time with that story about your son and Rosa Parks. Yeah, I, you know, every day um, I would pick my kids up from school. I basically asked them the same question. You know, what'd you learn from school today? And, um, you know, we that that would be how we would start our discussion, and and oftentimes I would have to correct certain kind of things that their teachers would say, and in in some cases even have to call the teachers to say, "Look, you can't. <laughs> that's that's misinformation." <laughs> but on but on one particular day during Black History Month, my son, anticipating my my question, was so excited. He said, "Dad, you know, I'm gonna tell you what I learned today. I learned about Rosa Parks." And, and I was all excited, too. I was like, oh, boy, getting excited about Rosa Parks. Tell me. <laughs> and then, then he started telling me this story about some tired old lady with tired feet and how she was so tired she didn't want to give up her seat and she got arrested and all this kind of stuff. And, and I'm looking at him, and, and he can tell by the look on my face 
that something's wrong because he's so excited about it, right? Mm-hmm. And then he said, Pop, what's, what's wrong? I mean, did I say something wrong? I was like, you said a lot wrong. I said, that has nothing to do with the actual Rosa Parks that lived. And he was confused because, you know, this was something that he thought I'd be excited about. And, of course, I made him read her autobiography, mm-hmm. which, as you know, was written during her lifetime as this uh, misinformation about her uh, her uh, uh, social activism was being perpetuated. That's right. And part of the reason she wrote the, the autobiography was to set the record straight. And so I ordered the book. My son read it, and he was he was shocked to learn that she was a, a great admirer of Malcolm X, that her grandfather, who she admired greatly, uh, was light enough to pass as white and would often, when he would take them into town, he would uh, take them into town with his shotgun over his, his waist in his wagon to make sure that they, people understood that if anybody messed with his children, they were going to get a cap. Mm-hmm. in their proverbial behind. <laughs> um, and so she grew up with, with this kind of armed self-defense mentality. And in fact, she uh, thought Martin Luther King initially was a little crazy because she saw him get punched on stage and, and, and tell the white, the, the people that were grabbing the white dude that punched him to back off. And she said, well, you know, the way she was raised, she, this, this didn't make, make any sense for her. And so when my son uh, learned about this, um, he wanted to do something to educate his class. So he ended up using a speaking assignment to um, debunk the myths about Rosa Parks. And of course, his teacher hears the, you know, she hears him give the speech. And of course, he's embarrassed because he's correcting her, but he's <laughs> doing it in a very kind of, you know, savvy way, which of course, I, I remind my audience, that was his idea, because I was just going to talk to the teacher and the principal. My son wanted to, to make his own intervention. Mm-hmm. And uh, the teacher, to her credit, uh, she corrected herself. She apologized to him, and she threw herself into correcting other uh, myths about the civil rights uh, mm-hmm. movement. But I became frustrated, you know, in retrospect, I became frustrated by the fact that here my son, at nine years old, was having to take on the burden of educating his white teacher about black history, and by extension, of course, Tavi, to, uh, to, to educate his teacher about how to treat him as a human being. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so this, you know, this is really, this was kind of the, the fulcrum of my, my Ted talk to think about like, why is it that even with this living and breathing icon of a civil rights figure that we needed, right? We needed Rosa Parks not to be the intelligent, shrewd, uh, armed self-defense, Malcolm X admiring person that she was. We needed her to be, some old, tired black woman who just happened to be an accidental activist. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and the question then, right, is what are the stakes for us actually seeing Rosa Parks in all her, you know, glory and all her intelligence and all her shrewdness and all her power? Why is it so difficult for us to conceptualize her and to embrace her as such? Mm. Mm. I'm just um, I'm, your your comments are, are quite sobering. I had the honor of uh, eulogizing her. There were actually three um, funerals for Rosa Parks, three three uh, services, one in Montgomery at the church that she attended. And that's the one I spoke at and eulogized her there. Uh, as you know, she was the first uh, black woman to lie in state in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, mm. A second service there and the final service at Greater Grace in Detroit, where she had moved 
uh, once leaving the South and worked for many years for the late great Congressman John Conyers uh, in the city of Detroit. So there were three services for her, but I was honored to be invited to give the to, to eulogize her, to funeralize her uh, at that first service at her church in uh, Montgomery. So I am just uh, just shaking a bit uh, as you tell that story. So it's a it's a powerful story, um, which leads us right into what I want to talk to you about in the um, eight or so minutes I have left here. Um, and you can uh, take the time to put a finer point on the question that I wanted you to tackle, which is um, uh, why our white brothers and sisters have as much to lose as we do, black mm. folk, when black history is whitewashed. Take it away, Professor Eichert. Yeah, well, you know, look, January 6th, mm-hmm. right? Um, we have a situation. I, uh, one of my colleagues, John Metzl, writes a book called Dying of Whiteness. And in the book, he recounts the ways that um, gun ownership by uh, whites has contributed to so many deaths, suicides, and other types of dangers to white folks and the ways in which uh, a lot of uh, gun lobbyists and, and even state uh, legislatures keep the stats about this erased, right? And that these types of um, these types of phenomenon are erased because they want to continue to perpetuate this idea that that gun ownership is about you know white self determination and manhood and so on and so forth, and and to erase the dangers of that. Mm-hmm. I think it is a practice in white America to erase those things which obscure this kind of um, way in which uh, freedom in America has been premised uh, parasitically on denying the rights and the humanities of black and brown people. Mm -hmm. And that is almost like a virus. When you employ that type of thinking to keep a certain group down, that same type of thinking ends up contaminating even your own intimate spaces. So in other words, as James Baldwin would say, the lie that you tell about us ends up being the lie that you tell yourself about yourself. Mm. Right? Mm. So you can't, because you can't, and you, let's think about it like this, subprime the subprime debacle started in black and brown communities with various banks and uh, financial organizations exploiting those communities for financial gain, right? And because nobody did anything about that, it spread to the greater, wider community, and then it went global, right? Mm-hmm. Had people been paying attention to what was happening to those black and brown people in the ways that they were being exploited, they could have headed that off that particular global crisis hit it off at the curb, but because it started with people that were disrespected, that were not seen as fully human, we ignored that and it ignored it until it became an issue that affected not just white Americans, but the whole entire global economy. Mm-hmm. And so it's important, right? It's important for white folks to realize that if they ignore, they can only ignore black people at their own peril because we in some ways are the canary in the coal mine. Yes. We, we are, we, we represent the warning, right. Of um, the failure of our country to live up to its ideals um, at, at the ground level. And if we, if we continue to ignore those types of things, we can literally put a madman in the White House and give this person the code to nuclear 
war, mm. right? That, that, that we can end up putting people in power that literally are white supremacists, that literally um, are narcissistic, that literally prioritize their own individual gain over the large republic. There are, there are, there are millions of people that died because of COVID-19, primarily because they were being lied to by a president who said that the vaccine was not that big of a deal, that the, the virus was not that big of a deal. And he, who, and the per, and he himself, even, even as he's telling his constituents this, he's taking every vaccination, every booster, every mm-hmm. therapy that's available to him, even as he's feeding the people these lies. And as a result of that, there were people who were literally in their deathbed and were told that they had COVID and were dying with COVID. But they said, I, that, can't, that can't be possibly true because Trump told me something different, mm. right? And so I think that's the danger. The danger is that you fall for the okie-doke because you, you, you use that to erase the humanity of black people. And then that same type of uh, misinformation, that those same type of lies end up visiting your home and end up contaminating yeah. where you live. No, well, I hear you loud and clear. Um, I got 90 seconds to go here. Um, what say you finally, I'm thinking about your nine-year-old son, how he had to educate in school uh, his teacher about Rosa Parks. What say you right. about about the, 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 the mandate that we know our own history? Your son can't be blamed at nine for something a teacher told him wrongly. Thankfully, he had a daddy who's a scholar who could correct it. But very quickly, what said you about the burden that we bear to know our own history? Well, I think that it's, it's important and it's imperative that, you know, we embrace the reality that in order for us to be free, we have to educate our own. Yeah. We, cannot, we cannot rely, right? Tony Morrison reminded us that those folks who have a vested interest in our subordination are not going to give us the key to get out of the cage <laughs> of That's our right. subordination. That's That's right. right. In other words, your oppressors are not going to get you, give you the key to show you how to um, end your oppression, right? Mm-hmm. End your subjugation. And so it, it's imperative that we, you know, supplement the education that our children receive in our churches, in our civic organizations at home yes. and educate ourselves. Yeah. Right. So that so that they they understand who they are and where mm-hmm. they come from. As this audience knows, I love a great book title. Let me tell you right quick uh, some of the names of the books that <laughs> Professor uh, Eichert, uh, Professor Eichert has uh, either written or co-authored. Uh, Breaking the Silence Toward a Black Male Feminist Criticism, Nation of Cowards, Black Activism in Barack Obama's Post-Racial America, Blinded by the Whites, Why Race Still Matters in 21st Century America, and Lovable Racist, Magical Negroes and White Messiahs. <laughs> You got to love his books. You got to love his titles. Uh, Dr. Eichert, good to have you on, man. All the best to you. We'll do it again. Happy holidays, sir. Hey, I appreciate you. Thank you, sir. Love you back, man. Good to have you on. After news, traffic, and sports, the writer.